This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please go to patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast and do us a favor and leave us a good star review on iTunes. Uh, Jessica will be back soon. This week, I had a chance to speak with Adam Lotz. He's the professor of education and history, by courtesy, at Binghamton University, part of the State Universities of New York. He's the author, most recently, of Fundamentalist You, Keeping the Faith in American Higher Education. And that's the book I wanted to talk to him about. It's a whole exploration of some of the most conservative Christian schools in the country, and there's so many questions I have when it comes to that issue. Uh, Adam Lotz has also contributed essays to Education Week, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Washington Post, Time, and Newsweek. He also blogs about education, history, and culture war angst at I Love You, But You're Going to Hell. So let me just get right into this, which is to say that you didn't attend the schools you're writing about in this book, and I'm not even sure if you visited them, but I did hear that you went through the school's archives. What exactly does that entail? Uh, well, um, it's, you know, the different schools have different archives. Uh, I, but, but it's true. I didn't, I didn't attend these schools. I couldn't, like, they wouldn't hire me. I couldn't yeah. teach there. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I couldn't sign their statement of faith. I wasn't raised evangelical or, or fundamentalist. Um, but the archives are, you know, they're located on the school campus. Uh, so for me, um, it wasn't an official part of my research, but I do find it illuminating to, you know, stroll around the campus, um, talk to the archivists and to students, and to see. I've spent pretty much my whole adult life in schools of one sort or another. So I enjoy, the archives are at the schools. Um, I enjoy being there as well as reading about the past to get a sense of the, the feeling of the present. And what exactly were you looking for when you're searching through those archives that you might not be able to find just by, you know, talking to students or talking to professors or administrators? Well, I, I guess that's the, the challenge for any uh, historian. Um, I didn't want to be too um, prescriptive with my outlining before I went into the archives uh, so you want to, I wanted to be open to being surprised, uh, to having my uh, research be guided by what I found. Um, and I think some of the things that um, evangelical readers of my book won't like is that uh, some of the archival, the things that come out so strongly in the archives, uh, they, uh, evangelicals, would like to think is sort of um, no longer an issue. Such and as? Of course, well, for a historian, <laughs> the fact that it's no longer an issue means it's still an issue. Uh, there's um, So, for example, the most obvious case, I think, for a lot of my um, evangelical friends these days is that these schools, all of them, and, they, and they're different. There are very different, um, vast differences between these schools that I, um, a lot of my non-evangelical friends and, and me didn't understand very well. Uh, you know, there's a vast uh, difference between Wheaton College in Illinois, uh, and Bob Jones University in South Carolina. Uh, there, so there, there is both in the history and in present day. There, it's a huge diversity of schools, but at all of them, even the ones uh, that sort of treasure their current relatively liberal, relatively inclusive status, all of them had very troubled 20th century histories with both racial issues. 
uh, and gender and sexuality issues. So let me let me bring that up since you mentioned Bob Jones. Uh, one thing I'm really curious about is when you have these schools that claim to be, you know, we represent the Word of God as we know it, I'm really curious how they rationalize their own changing beliefs. And just looking at Bob Jones University, they famously banned interracial dating until, I think, when, 2000? Like, 2000. How do they convince students that, like, we're correct now, but in the past, when we said we were correct, we were wrong? Yeah. Uh, you put your finger right on uh, the most difficult sort of intellectual and spiritual challenge facing these schools as institutions. Uh, Bob Jones University does more than that. Bob Jones University in its charter, uh, same with Bryan College in Tennessee and a couple other schools from this family of schools. In, Brian, in, in Bob Jones' charter, uh, they said, we promise, or whatever the language is, nothing in this charter can ever be changed. <laughs> So the explicit in that case, and everywhere else it's, it's implicit but very powerful, the promise of these schools, the reason for these schools to be the way they are is because higher education uh, was changing rapidly at the end of the um, 1800s. So most of the things that uh, we associate with college now, um, uh, both academically and not academically, they aren't that old. So like NCAA sports are only about 100 years old. Uh, fraternities, the way we know them, are only about a hundred some odd years old, and even the systems of uh, choosing a major and having electives, not that old. So as those changes were happening, and, and most importantly, changes like uh, an approach to science that didn't assume supernatural revelation as the starting point of research, what, what we think of as you know science. That is not a very, as a dominant concept at, at higher ed, that's not very old. Only since, you know, after the American Civil War did that become the dominant approach in mainstream colleges. So the, the evangelicals um, that founded the network that I studied were uh, aghast at the changes that were happening in, in higher ed. Public schools, but also uh, mainline evangelical and evangelical colleges as well. So a school like Wake Forest, for example, in North Carolina, it's a Baptist school. Um, and Baptists were, uh, conservative Baptists, excuse me, were outraged by the changes that were happening at Wake Forest or the University of Chicago, another Baptist-funded school. Um, so as a response, this group of intellectuals and academics founded a different type of school on the foundation of this promise not to change not to do what all what mainstream and mainline schools did which is you know slowly accept theological liberalism more and more and slowly accept a fun, fundamentally secular approach to research and to you know science as a you know capital S science so in bob jones case they made it a very explicit we will never in the 1920s this charter this fun, when they started their school we can never ever change it we promise we won't and the kicker is that all of the schools, including Bob Jones, have to change all the time. I mean, they don't care necessarily about adding new majors or things like that. But in terms of approaches to um, fundamental ideas about theology, science, uh, social relations, all of them have changed, some more than others, and some with more difficulty than others. The peculiar thing about Bob Jones University when it comes to racial segregation, 
is that in 1960, the founder, Bob Jones Sr., published a sermon and distributed it widely saying, okay, we, we think racial segregation is proper, but he added the, the vital caveat for this family of schools. Not only is it proper because we think it's you know, the right thing to do, like you know, eating vegetables. It's proper, Bob Jones Sr. said in 1960, because it's based in the correct interpretation of scripture. And once Bob Jones Sr. said that publicly in writing, published widespread, it was almost impossible for the school to change that particular rule. And this is why other schools, even Southern schools, uh, either uh, schools like Liberty University, which started in the 70s, uh, they didn't have a particularly um, stellar, from my opinion, uh, uh, particularly stellar record on race, um, but they moved away from that sort of white supremacist uh, segregatory policy. Bob Jones University couldn't, because in 1960, its founder said, this isn't just something we choose, like a human thing. This is God's word as spoken in Scripture. They were stuck with it at that point. And so when they finally do get around to changing it, what's the rationale? They, it, it, the difficult thing is they have to figure a way to say, we were wrong in our interpretation of Scripture. Scripture right. can never be incorrect. Uh, in that school in particular, the, the shadow of the founder, Bob Jones Sr., was so you know, strong, was so dominant that it was harder than it was for other schools to say, oh, that was a human error, an interpretive error. Uh, scripture doesn't actually say that. And did everyone just go along with it when they, I mean, I'm sure everyone, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt here. I'm sure there were very few defenders of the rule, uh, at least among the students saying like, yeah, we should keep it like uh, segregated. But do they just say like, yeah, we were just wrong with our interpretation? Because doesn't isn't that like a domino toppling then? And aren't the rest of them going to fall then? Uh, you mean like all the other rules and ideas that are based on the Bible? Right. Yeah. Well, no. And again, I think um, again, I'm I'm not from an evangelical background. This isn't my um, you know. There's nothing personal for it for me. But I have learned to have more respect for the conservative evangelical academics that I've studied than I, than I did when I started. Um, they have um, a very uh, profound and flexible uh, and, and storied tradition of negotiating exactly that topic. When was this uh, cultural mistake made by people in the past in their interpretation of Scripture compared to um, when is it when is the change an actual, when were, when were they right in the past? And so therefore change would be, you know, a very bad thing. In general, the conservative schools that I, the evangelical schools, obviously they tip towards not changing and changing is very difficult. It's, can I give another example that yeah, I think sure. sort of exemplifies this? Um, the, and for, for a historian like me, it, it's kind of makes you dizzy. Um, Brian College a couple years ago, they changed their um, faculty statement of belief. I, you know, I every... actually had a question just about this. Um, it, so they were requiring professors to sign a statement. I actually wrote this one out because it's silly to me. <laughs> All right. But they said the origin of man was by fiat of God in the act of creation as related in the book of Genesis. Um, so God created man. And you could twist that to say God just started the evolutionary process but in 2014, they changed the statement to very explicitly say we're talking about 
young earth creationism. And this is well, like a faculty, they have to sign off on this to teach there. Yeah, specifically, uh, and again, this is something that I've, I've, I've struggled to figure out the nuances over the, the past 10 years or so. But specifically, it was um, a two human creation. So Adam and Eve are the literal biological ancestors of all humans. Um, and that is the statement that they changed it to. So it implies a young earth, but it doesn't actually, there's nothing geological. It's right. just an implication. The actual thing is biological. Human, or, uh, all humans everywhere came from two actual people that were actually created the way Genesis says a couple of different ways. And that led to some pushback from faculty members because, I mean, the ones who accept science are like, that's, that's not how we got here, literally. It's a story in the Bible. Exactly. And, and uh, faculty had been teaching uh, what I would call creationism, but they felt they, like, as you mentioned, they felt they had some leeway about what does it actually mean? What is, you know, we, we agree that God created. Um, we can, as, you know, evangelicals, as Christians, we can explore uh, the details as long as we agree on that part. Brian College said, no, 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 we agree on a lot more. And in fact, uh, the faculty sued the school. They the, the Bryan College didn't ad, admit wrongdoing, but they settled the lawsuit. And the, the faculty, I thought this was a, a very smart move. They said, Bryan College's charter says it can't change that stuff. Mm. So by changing it, you're going against the charter, even though you're tightening and making more conservative. Uh, and the charter was supposed to be a, a guarantee of conservatism about these things. So it's actually the faculty members pushing for a more evolutionary interpretation of that, saying, yeah, you're too liberal for what the charter said. Right. Well, saying uh, you're not too liberal, but you can't change the charter, right. even if you want to change it to be more conservative. <laughs> you can't do it. So, OK, so me, as someone who spends uh, his life in the archives, um, this same thing happened in 1961 at Wheaton College in Illinois. Uh, the, I mean, almost to the letter, there was a famous creationist scientist. Um, and I know some of your uh, uh, followers and fans might not like the phrase creationist scientist, but I think it's yeah. apt. Uh, Russell Mixter was his name. And he had, um, you know, he had a PhD uh, from a secular school uh, in zoology at the time, um, but basically a biologist. And he, uh, reading the works of people like Bernard Ram, he came to a conclusion um, that we uh, evangelical belief didn't imply a young earth, uh, didn't imply um, a, a literal worldwide flood. Uh, and in fact, uh, what, what secular people talk about as evolution is, is fine as long as evangelicals, he called it progressive creationism, as long as evangelicals understand that God didn't just start the process and back away, God is always involved. And for uh, evangelicals, the notion of a distant God is no good. It has to be a, a personal, involved God. And was that so, a heretical almost take on it at the time? Uh, yes, uh, so much so that uh, Wheaton, uh, well, and I think the word heretical is charged here, because <laughs> Russell Mixter at the time and for years after said, there's nothing absolutely heretical about this. This is uh, the argument that, that uh, is so different, I think, than secular arguments. Both, no, it wasn't that one side said, you're, you're changing, so therefore it's heresy. And the other side said, yes, heresy is good. That's not how it happens. Instead, one side says, hey, wait, 
our thinking about this is based on human, cultural, incorrect uh, additions that people have made to the scripture. Uh, and the other side says, no, 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 our thinking about that previous was correct, uh, proper, biblical understanding of scripture. So both, neither side says, yes, we're heretics, unless they're ready to pack their bags. Um, uh, one, one question it, I have. Yeah, go ahead. But instead, both sides say, in all of these cases, you know, how do things change? Neither side says the Bible's wrong and was wrong. Both sides try to say our side is the side that is now correctly interpreting the Bible. Um, and n- always the value of, of knowledge coming from Scripture first, all sides agree with that basic principle. When it comes to Bryan College, one question I have about the evolution, the, the Adam and Eve change they made, why are they pushing for purity over something that even to them is not a matter of salvation? Yeah, great question. So um, here's, this is, I have no inside knowledge. I didn't, Bryan College wouldn't let me go to their archives. Um, so I, I can't claim to know. And even if it, I did, I wouldn't be looking at 2014. Um, my hunch, and this is one of the things that um, intrigues me with this research, uh, throughout the 20th century, these schools have been driven, have been talking in terms of theology um, and, and sort of cultural politics. You know, we keep kids from drinking because of this and this. Uh, we, we keep kids from uh, dating because of this and this. Uh, they talk about it in theological terms and, and religious and cultural terms. But in fact, uh, for you know, throughout the 20th century, about 100 years now, all of these schools have also been driven by institutional um, imperatives. So, for example, every school, my school, your school, all institutions of higher education need to keep the students coming with tuition dollars, and they need to keep the uh, um, alumni happy with alumni dollars. If they do that, or if they don't do that, at least you know to to a, a, a survivable amount. If they if they don't keep students coming in, if they don't keep alumni at least by and large happy, they will stop existing as as schools. They won't be able to function. And so, pushing right. for these changes is a way to keep the donors happy, in a sense, and the students more excited to go there, and to get Ken Ham to come to school and say yes. America and Australia. If you come to Bryan College, you're going to be on my Answers in Genesis list, which it is, of (laughs) reliable colleges. Yeah, he publishes his like little booklet of uh, which colleges actually, according to him, stick to the Word of God. Exactly. So, and I, and again, I'm not, I'm not um, casting aspersions on the sincerity of anybody involved, uh, but I, I, the, the talk is always about you know theological purity and sort of social political purity. But in fact, they can't um, separate those discussions from the fact that they have to keep surviving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, secular colleges or mainline colleges, small ones, are also uh, trying to figure out a niche uh, that they can uh, promote as their thing. Bryan yeah. College, it, you know, it's, one of its niches is going to be that it's on Ken Ham's list. Yeah. It's not an accident that Ken Ham just got an honorary doctorate from Bryan College. <laughs> Oh, so many thoughts about that. It sounds like they're just all, because they're competing against each other for the same pool of students, they're just trying to, like, out-Christianize each other. 
Well, uh-huh. yes and, and no. And it, it goes back to the GI Bill. Uh, just like the rest of higher education, evangelical and fundamentalist higher education changes totally after the war. Because all of a sudden you have these huge new numbers of Americans, all kinds of Americans, including evangelicals, who are uh, both interested in going to college and financially able to go to college. So it's not an accident that at the same time you have a split between people who start calling themselves evangelical and people who start or keep calling themselves fundamentalists. And some of the schools say, hey, come here because we're the real, real, real fundamentalists. We're so fundamentalists. You know, we're more fundamentalists than Bob Jones. We're the real fundamentalists. We're Pensacola. Um. Uh, and other ones, though, other schools say, hey, at our school, you're going to learn real science, but in a real Christian atmosphere. Schools like Gordon and Wheaton uh, that promote themselves as sort of academically superior because they're free from those fundamentalist hang-ups. They're still real Christians. They're still real evangelicals. Theologically, they promise they're the same. But their niche is to be more academically sort of, um, I, I don't want to say mainstream because that's not what they would want to say, yeah. but uh, sort of respectable, I guess would be the best word. Um, it would be easy, I think, for a lot of secular people to say some of these institutions exist in a bubble, right? Uh, the students who go there, the the academics they're teaching, I mean, it, it's all in this very inclusive network. They don't live in the real world. At the same time, Liberty University, for example, has an online presence that uh, the New York Times post, uh, wrote an article not that long ago, published it. That's It's, it's a billion-dollar industry. So you can't just write it off and say they all are in a bubble, but what is it? Are these institutions really powerful in the secular world, or do they are they only power in powerful in a Christian setting? Man, uh, a fantastic uh, question. I I think that the 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 uh, if you really want to understand these questions, especially for people who aren't from the, this world, but also for people who are, uh, the answer: Do these schools want to be a like a bubble, or do they want to be sort of dominant over mainstream America? I think the question, it's a little too clever maybe, but the answer is yes. (laughs) They want to be both. So let me, uh, Liberty is a perfect example. Uh, The the ProPublica article you mentioned, um, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. claims to have $2.5 billion with a B uh, dollars in net assets. And I don't think it's any accident that he spends a big chunk, and it comes from online, but he spends a big chunk on like very traditional brick-and-mortar higher ed stuff. So um, uh, his football team, or the, the Liberty football team, beat Baylor this year. And Liberty freaked out in a good way. They were delighted. They called off school for the next day to celebrate. It's not, And it's not just because of school pride. It's because that's a symbol to the Jerry Falwell Juniors of the, year, of the world that Liberty is more than just a bubble. It's a bubble that is every bit as good as anything you'd find outside the bubble. So uh, in the book too, this idea of being both a bubble for students and a sort of um, superior Christian uh, higher education, not, not falling behind, but leaping in front of, uh, the, the current organization that people look at, the CCCU, um, it's the you know, Coalition of Christian Colleges and Universities, the roots of that in the 50s weren't to be what it is today, which is sort of like a, 
you know, uh, uh, just a, they do accreditation and they sort of have some marketing and publicity for evangelical schools. The goal in the 1950s for what, what became the CCCU was uh, a coalition of evangelical colleges to be a sort of super university. The founders of the CCCU, especially a guy named Hudson Armerding, who became the president at Wheaton College, what he wanted to do is what Jerry Falwell is, Jr. is trying to do now, have evangelical colleges, but have them be not just keeping up with mainstream higher ed, but leaping over it and being the best universities, the most famous, with the best football, the best resources, the best everything. So I think this the tension between, on the one hand, our students are going to be in a safe bubble where they won't hear about um, things like, you know, uh, you know, uh, queer theory. Uh, they just won't hear about it. That's very strong and important. But at this, if we think, though, that it's a kind of intellectual Amish movement, we, we're misunderstanding it because it also wants to be dominant. And I think in a lot of people's vision, it wants to be dominant again. I, don't, I think it's no mistake that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump and so many of them still say they approve of his work. And I, I wouldn't say that this is like the, the, the main reason, but I certainly think in the intellectual world of evangelical higher education, the, the half, you know, part of it is having a bubble or a fortress maybe would be a better word to protect evangelical students intellectually and socially. But the other half is to have a fortress from which evangelicals can sally out to take back America, to make it be what it used to be, what they think it used to be, and what they what they imagine it should be in the future. Uh, one of the questions that I'm curious about is, you know, as an atheist, I think of college as a place where your views are supposed to be challenged, where, you know, if someone comes at you with something you're not used to, good. I, I want to see more of that. Even if they're not violating their statement of faith that they have to sign at these schools, what happens at the various schools when students either question their faith or hold a dissenting view about, let's say, Donald Trump? Because I know at Liberty, there are students who don't like Donald Trump and the, what he's done. Um, and they've effectively been almost shut down in a lot of ways by Jerry Falwell Jr. But at other schools, if you are challenging aspects of your religion or you have different ideas about how something should be is is questioning these things and a dissenting opinion are they held in the same regard as they might at a good secular school uh, i think short answer yes uh, i think um when it comes to schools like bob jones or liberty uh, for most colleges these days from the, in the evangelical family uh, those particular schools, especially the the way Jerry Falwell has been um, chumming it up so much with the, President Trump these days, uh, that's an anomaly in a lot of ways. Um, I would say it's not it's not a surprise. It comes out of the fundamentalist wing of the evangelical family to be um, insistent on a certain political way of thinking, but also in the archives. I, again and again, and you hear it from from people these days as well. People who go to evangelical schools, students aren't uh, students don't have to sign a statement of faith. Uh, students, the faculty does, but the students are this. The goal is certainly to train students up in this faith, but they don't have to sign a statement saying they believe it 
I think depending on the school, depending on the, the decade, students feel more or less uh, free to um, explore. And the issues that people feel free to explore change over time. Uh, you know, even at Liberty, some students have uh, published their memoir about coming out. Uh, and it's not, they don't get the reception that someone might like me would think. They find people who, faculty members who say, you know, the first message is that I love you. Let's start with that. Um, but certainly, uh, I think at most of these schools, the, the, if you, if you want to talk about fundamental, you know, epistemological commitments, then certainly students aren't expected to explore the ideas, you know, all the ideas that someone would put on the table about, you know, where do we come from? Um, how do I know things? They're certainly encouraged to, you know, know uh, things through the, the perspective of Scripture. But once you say that, you, uh, having said that, students reported always and still today at most schools, not all schools, um, a surprising amount of freedom in exploration of different ideas. Uh, and again, I want to I qualify that by saying that's uh, surprising, you know, to people like me uh, and maybe you who expect students to have zero wiggle room. It's not zero. Uh, again, I, I, it's not a place I would send my daughter, uh, any of these schools. It's not our faith. Um, and I would want the emphasis to be on free exploration, which is a different emphasis. But compared to zero freedom, there is what I would say at most schools, a surprising amount of room for students to explore certain ideas. Some things are still um, uh, taboo, uh, but, but not as many as you might think if you don't know this world. That actually makes me feel a little better. Um, let me ask you a little bit about the students. Uh, if they're not going into ministry, uh, do the graduates of these schools do okay when they make it out into the real world? I mean, relative to, to other colleges, what are the students doing when they graduate and are they successful in a sense? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the, again, I want to start with the vast diversity of these schools. So some of these schools came out of the Bible Institute movement, um, you know, in different eras, but the, the movement itself started at the end of the 1800s. Those schools were, again, uh, over 100 years ago and into probably the first two-thirds of the 20th century, those schools were primarily dedicated to training a certain sort of missionary. Um, so uh, often they became Bible, called themselves different things, like they became Bible colleges and then Bible universities and then just plain universities. But it, their roots were in training specifically missionaries. Other schools had always been four-year liberal arts colleges, and then may have become universities, and they were always about professional training. Um, of course, they hoped that their graduates would have a missionary approach, but they were always, so Bob Jones College, for example, was founded not as a missionary training school, not as a Bible institute, but specifically, uh, the founders in the 20s were very clear that they wanted to have fundamentalist doctors, fundamentalist lawyers, fundamentalist governors and presidents and teachers, it was, um, they were supposed to do very well professionally. Has it worked? I, I think the, the, the first answer um, is yes, you know, as well as, as, well as any other uh, type of school, there's, again, the vast diversity. But for a while, Wheaton College in Illinois claimed, uh, and I haven't been able to verify this, but they claimed that per student, they sent the most graduates to Ivy League PhD programs of any 
college, uh, not just evangelical colleges, any college. So there's just like anything else, there's, there's the Wheatons and the Calvins uh, of the evangelical world, and then, which are very prestigious and hard to get into and sort of academically elite. Uh, and then there are, you know, every step down the ladder uh, in terms of academic prestige uh, and sort of job chances out once you get out. But certainly the people who go to uh, these evangelical colleges are keenly aware, just like, you know, secular schools, of the sort of prestige differences, just like, you know, a college, uh, a high school senior these days, if he applies to Princeton or she applies to uh, Binghamton, they know that those are uh, different schools in terms of your chances to get in. And when it comes to, I, I know the answer kind of at Wheaton, maybe that when they graduate, the students who go in uh, may have a different view of faith when they leave, but at a place like Bob Jones or a place like Liberty, uh, what's or Bryan College? What happens to the faith of the students who leave it? Is it? I mean, I think a lot of parents would send their kids there because they want them to stay strong in their religion. But you know, they're growing up at a time when they are going to start having questions and thinking about this stuff, hopefully in a more mature way. Are they always as strong Christians when they leave, or do a lot of them end up losing their faith? Well, I, I don't have hard numbers, but I, I'm like you. I assume that it's a sort of uh, um, some people, again, and I'll, I'll speak from what I do know, in the 20th century at least, some people went to these schools because they were supposed to be nurtured in their faith, and instead they learned why they hated their faith. You know, they were so turned off by the school, by the strict rules, by the attitudes, that the school did exactly the opposite of what it hoped to do. And again, I don't think that's just for evangelicals. Think about how many people went to Catholic schools oh, yeah. only, only to learn that, you know, the, you know, the nuns were mainly there to hit you kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, anecdotally, I could speak to that and say I've heard a lot of stories from people who go to these schools and end up shedding their faith by the time they leave. But of course, I only know those stories because they tell me because those are the ones who left. And I'm wondering if that's uh, more pervasive than just the stories yeah. I've heard of. Um, yeah, certainly in the archive files, all of these schools, they have very strict um, rules for what students can do, uh, you know, go to the movies, drink alcohol, that kind of thing. Well, when you just go to the archives, there are these huge folders, and depending on the decade, you know, there, there are these bulging um, student problems, student disciplines folders. So the temptation is to say, holy cow. And some of them, I mean, the stories are just, they leap off the pages. A student in... in um, Los Angeles at Biola University in the 50s, who fakes his own death and moves to Texas because he doesn't want to come out as gay to his, um, to his family and friends. It's a heartbreak. Uh, the student from Wisconsin who goes to the Moody Bible Institute and says, hey, I'm an evangelical, and this is in the 30s, but I'm also a socialist. You know, deal with it. Um, so there, those folders are, are huge and bulging, but what we don't have... It's the temptation is to say, holy cow, students have never done the rules. Why did they bother? What we don't have are files of students who liked the rules. Mm. You know, the, it shows up. So, for example, uh, there was one, you know, I love her. Uh, she wrote a letter home to her mom every Friday from Wheaton College in the 30s and 40s. And she talked on and on about what she was going through. And, and Wheaton has those in its archive. And she went to Wheaton. Uh, she didn't have much choice. She was from this very prominent fundamentalist family. 
but she loved it. Uh, she loved the creationism she was learning. She loved the the constrictions that she had on her uh, romantic life. She thought she was being guided in you know how properly to love another human. Uh, she loved the rules, but she, you know she was so unusual. Uh, or sorry, the 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 fact that her experiences are so well archived is unusual. Generally, if you didn't get in trouble, you sort of disappear historically. So I do think. I think it's unquantifiable, but I, I think the people who stand out are the ones who don't like it, uh, who don't think, who you know, who go against it, who publicly mail back their diplomas to Jerry Falwell Jr., for example, to protest. Those students are easily documented. What's harder, and, and, and I think there are uh, you know, a very substantial number of students who go to these schools you know, learn exactly the opposite of what the school was hoping to teach them. Right. Um, I don't want to downplay the number of sort of invisible students who either sort of don't care that much and sort of passively accept, you know, the theology and the lifestyle and the politics, or who actively like it. Um, you know, sometimes you know, there's definite, they're definitely there, uh, but they're harder to capture historically and also today. I have two more, I think, quicker questions, maybe. Uh, one is, you're a faculty member at a college. Do you know what sort of debates go on among the faculty members at those Christian schools compared to the ones that you might see at a public university? Yes, uh, at least in the 20th century, for sure. And a lot of them sound very similar, except you sort of, it's kind of like the switch from gospel music to sort of R&B. You know, you just <laughs> take out the Jesus and put in baby. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like that in reverse. You know, if you take out the um, some of the words and you replace it with Jesus, the 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 debates between faculty and especially between faculty and administration sound very similar. You know, so you think of a guy like Greg Singer, who leaves Wheaton in 1948 because some of the things are exactly the same. He was mad because he felt he got passed over for a promotion. Um, he thought that the school should have smaller class sizes and devote itself more to the, um, in, you know, individual humanities approach to teaching instead of these sort of big batch processing. And both of those things could have come from any decade at any school. The kicker is that he um, was a Calvinist and didn't like the statement that, at the time about pre-millennial belief. So that wouldn't happen at my state university, or that particular fight wouldn't happen at my state university. But the, the interactions between faculty and between faculty and administration, if you just you take out the baby and put in Jesus, uh, they sound super similar, very similar in terms of how the schools were run. Um, and one last question for you, which is, I'm really curious how some of these schools are doing with regards to issues of harassment, because for a woman to come forward to school officials to say she was harassed or raped or something almost means admitting that she was doing something sexual. And I know at some schools, a lot of the women have been silent because of that, because going forward with a confession like that could be an expulsion for them. And I wonder if this is a, a new issue that they've figured out how to deal with at all. And, I, and believe me, I know public schools have their own issues with this too. Right. Uh, I, I do think that all of these schools, even the ones who pride themselves on being more um, liberal and sort of in line with uh, um, a sort of uh, equality and justice perspective that, that I would agree with, so schools like uh, Gordon or Wheaton, 
they they would say, well, we are we've made big strides, and and relatively they're correct. But I think at some of the schools, again, Bob Jones jumps out as the most obvious example. There has always been two things. Uh, um, there's always been uh, a hyper um, gendered hierarchical uh, approach to uh, men and women students. You know, women students have always borne the burden of, um, you know, control when it comes to behavior in general, but especially sexual behavior. The second thing at schools like Bob Jones, and not just Bob Jones, but Bob Jones is the one that I spent the most time in the archives, less obviously, you know, in addition to this sort of purity culture, um, the curse of this purity culture, what I think of as a curse, it really, you know, putting the burden so much more on women than on men for any sort of sexual encounters. In addition to that, Bob Jones and many other schools have an authoritarian leadership culture that punishes any sort of complaining by anyone, faculty, students. So in that culture, to come forward and report a problem or an assault or abuse, not only are you dealing with the sort of um, you know, uphill battle of this really uh, ferocious gender hierarchy, which you are, but you're also dealing with the institutional assumptions that complaining is disloyal, that you're not being loyal to the school if you complain. And I think that combined, I think, again, I think all of the schools that I studied must do better. Uh, some of them have done better, but particularly at the authoritarian fundamentalist schools, they've done a double, uh, they have this legacy, this double burden legacy uh, for women and all victims of sexual abuse and assault is that they're on number one. Uh, and, and I think it's true for non-hetero um, issues as well. Uh, number one, women are um, made to bear all of the, the burden of any sort of sexual encounter. Um, and number two, any complaint is sort of uh, implicitly disloyal and discouraged. Huh. Well, that's disappointing. Yeah, and I, again, I, they would point. Bob Jones would point to the fact, and it's not it's not untrue that they invited, which they never would have done in the 20th century. They invited an outside group, uh, Grace, to mm. come and, and examine them, and then they published the results, which they would never would have done in the 20th century. Uh, and again, as an outsider, I, I, you got to give them credit that that's that's a true thing. They did that, um, but what I think they are loath to do is really examine the powerful historical legacy that has put, um, has sort of, uh, has, you know, uh, criminalized still non-hetero sex, uh, and put the, every burden for any sort of sexual encounter, hetero, heterosexual encounters squarely on women and punished people who complained. Oh, I, I wanted to leave you with one quick story that I think goes along those lines. And uh, it's from Pensacola Christian College, which is really one of the more conservative ones, even on the spectrum you're talking about. Uh, several years ago, I, I don't remember if it was a student, a former student who told me about this, but they said that the fire policy at the school said if you live in their dorms and a fire alarm went off or something and you had to exit the dorms and, and go out of the building, uh, it, you had to cover yourself. So if you were in pajamas or something, which doesn't fit the school's dress code because you're not in class or something, you had to, like, the women specifically, 
had to get robes that were situated in the hallways to cover themselves up in before they left, which takes time. And if there's an actual fire, that could put them in trouble. And I remember emailing the school saying, hey, I heard this said about you. I can't find the information online. Is this accurate? Would you actually make women uh, like change their clothing or cover themselves up first rather than save their lives and just run outside as quickly as possible? And after a long back and forth, the answer I finally got was, yes, they do have to cover themselves up first, which just speaks to where their priorities are, I guess, in my mind. Yeah. The fire in your dorm is nothing compared to the eternal yeah. fires you're, you're putting yourself at risk. They did for. not say that to me, but yes, that is exactly where they were going. Um, thank you so much. Uh, the book is called Fundamentalist You. And Adam Lotz, thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for the call. My pleasure.